The uh, the gospel lesson is uh, Luke three seven through eighteen. John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, "You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor." For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The crowds asked him, what then should we do? And in reply, he said to them, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to be baptized, and they asked him, teacher, what should we do? He said to them, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers asked him, what do we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I'm not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and gather the wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So many other, uh, with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. I think this is probably the, I think this is the third time we've done this part of John. And, uh, you know, I've always kind of liked preaching on it. It's, you know, I think the first time we focused on the brood of vipers part and the second time on the threshing fork part, and I was just, you know, seemed like a good passage to preach about, but man, there's, there's something in here that I hadn't really seen before that is probably obvious to all of you that I think makes this uh, an incredible passage, uh, something that I think uh, is, is near transformative in how we think about the story that Luke Acts tells of uh, a fulfillment of promises to Israel and then an expansion of the idea of Israel. So, uh, you know, we're just going to dive right in. Uh, so John's at the Jordan. He's baptizing people. And as we've talked about for a while, he's talking about the necessity of metanoia. So whenever you see that word repentance, that's not uh, repentance in uh, the sense of, as I always say when Beth is in the room, it's, uh, it's more than saying sorry. It's, uh, one of our favorite Christmas movies has that line in it. Uh, it metanoia is not just an apology. Metanoia is uh, taking on a new mind. Uh, to be uh, remade by uh, having a new way of seeing and relating to the world. And that's, that's what John's calling for. He's saying, as we've talked about before, it's like uh, the modern version would be getting a new software or, or, or a new operating system that people needed not just to be washed in the water or even to be made righteous, but they needed to think and act and be differently in the world. That That's what uh, John was calling for, and that's what... John is, is seeing Jesus will bring. And so, uh, you know, if, this is what John's walking around preaching. And, and what I imagine is a, a little bit of a surprise to contemporary evangelical folk. Uh, John says maybe the least seeker-sensitive utterance in the Bible. <laughs> like, you, you imagine if everyone shows up to church and you're like, hey, you brood of vipers, who told you to flee? Now, why does he say it? That's, why does John call the folks who have come out seeking repentance uh, a brood of vipers? I mean, it's a... It's a tough claim. What is, what is the essence of what John is saying? Well, it, it'll become a little bit more clear as the passage continues, but we already have some sense of, 
of what it's about. John says wrath is coming. And as I've talked about a number of times before, the, the, the Greek word there is orge. Uh, and it, it means like, you know, what it sounds like the word that we also got from it. A kind of orgy of destruction is going to be poured out on the sin of the world. And here's the thing. The folks who think that that is happening, they're vipers if they come out simply to be baptized because it seems that like as if their primary concern is ultimately somewhat self-interested. You know, so, you know, John is, is, is calling them vipers because he discerns in them uh, the idea that they are coming out to be baptized, to become righteous for the sake of, I guess, their own righteousness. And there, as we know later in the passage, are soldiers there and tax collectors there. And those folks were basically the hands and feet and face of Roman oppression. And I guess... John says that these folks are vipers because these citizens and the subjects and the agents of the imperial order, all these people are out there. And it seems like the thing they're seeking is to be washed and to be cleansed. And in doing so, they're missing something. That's, I, I think that's why John calls them vipers. But that, that, that story can't entirely be complete until we understand what it is that John thinks they are missing. I mean, I mean, think about it. These people have come out and it's like this long, hot, dangerous, arduous journey to the wilderness to be baptized. And the first thing that John says to him is, well, you know, hey, welcome out, you little self-interested snakes. Uh, you know, you're running from the wrath that you probably deserve. And I don't know, like, isn't our impulse that like he should be making them sign a, a guest register, maybe asking if he can follow up to see if they have a home church. But here's the thing. John's not friendly, but he's also not unloving. See, that, that, the thing is that John has this kind of hard truth for these people who have come out to the boonies to be dunked or sprinkled. And the loving part is this. If you want metanoia, if you really want metanoia, you need a change in who you are and how you think. And you need to start by admitting that our motives are often, even when our motives seem to be in line with the kingdom or, or righteous or good, that our motives are ultimately most of the time about our own self-preservation or our own self-improvement as opposed to loving or serving God. See, I think the reason why John calls them vipers is because Jesus has not yet appeared on the scene for these people. They've come out because John is proclaiming the possibility of a new mind. They've come out because they want to be baptized. They want to be washed. And the thing is that it's as if they want that righteousness, that washing, that self-improvement before they meet the person Jesus. I think what John is saying is that the hard spiritual truth that these folks have come out for spiritual self-improvement, have come out to be made right with you know, the, their own kind of moral intentions. These folks have come out there and they've missed what will ultimately be the core spiritual truth of Christianity, which I take to be this, that righteousness, self-improvement, and all those things are a second order effect of a more fundamental thing. The primary thing is that we're called to know and love Jesus Christ. And in being called to know and love Jesus Christ, we are called to know and love and care for one another. And the effects of righteousness or transformation or whatever that comes from that, those things are an effect of an underlying more fundamental transformation. We can't seek the transformation first if that transformation is not about knowing and loving and being loved by Jesus Christ. 
And the hard truth of what it means to be a human being is if you seek self-improvement or righteousness in the absence of knowing Jesus Christ, even if your motives are good and what you seek is pure, seeking your own spiritual cleanliness before you are known and want to be known and to know God makes you a viper, a self-interested snake. That's the, that's the really hard truth John is saying here. I mean, literally, let it set in for a moment. The reason that you would come to the desert is not for self-improvement or to wash yourself or moral self-improvement or to make yourself clean. The reason why you should come to the desert is to meet Jesus. The reason why you would make that long, hard, arduous journey should be to encounter face-to-face the incarnate God. And that should be your first priority. Any other priority before that cannot be good and cannot be praiseworthy. It is a distortion of priorities to say that you seek anything other than the face of Jesus and to do what it is that Jesus calls us to do. Now, here's the thing. It's, you can only see this argument if you think deeply about what John is saying here. So the NRSV, as I have eight, translates it as bear fruits worthy of repentance. Anybody else got something that's substantially different in whatever they're reading? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Now, the word bear does in fact mean to produce, as the translation suggests. So fruits, karpos is the Greek word there, gets a little more complex. It's like, yeah, of course it's a literal fruit, like in the same way we'd use the concept of fruit. But the Greeks would have used that to say something like, a, I don't know, uh, the derivation of an underlying process. The word for worthy there, which is axios, I think it, it's a disastrous translation to say it's worthy. Because when we think of worthiness... What do we think about it? We think about it in a kind of moral sense. We think about worthiness as being in a state that is good enough to be deserving of something. So if you're a member of, uh, I don't know, like the Hills, Hillsboro Pokemon group, and Mason says, hey, let's, let's go p- play Pokemon, the Pokemon players might say, oh, we're not worthy, we're not worthy. <laughs> in that sense, worthy means something like being deserving, right? It means something like having a status that makes it possible for you to receive something. But that's that's not what axios means. The Bible uses that word to say someone got something that was good or someone got something that was bad. So axios has the sense of like just desserts or getting what's appropriate. So what are we made worthy of? What are we being called to be made worthy of? And the word here for repentance is, as we've suggested, is metanoia. So we have this, 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 so what's so crazy about this sentence is translated. We have this sentence that can mean basically two diametrically opposite things theologically. In one sense, that sentence can mean, hey, uh, you know, you need to bear fruit worthy of repentance, and that, and that contains this kind of profoundly anti-Christian sentiment, in my opinion, which says something like, you're only worthy of repentance if you have the fruit to show it. Like, you've got to kind of clean yourself up in order to make yourself uh, uh, worthy of or uh, acceptable for repentance. But guess what? Like, we believe none of us are worthy of repentance in that sense, in our own right. There's no good reason to be baptized if you're already clean. How would we ever become worthy of repentance in that sense? But that's not what John means. See, the action here, the thing that's supposed to come from metanoia, is the, the, the fruit is our action, a change in us. And what John is saying here, I think, is that if we are to take on a new mind, if we are to orient ourselves towards Christ, if we are to put Jesus first and therefore transform who we are, then what John says is, 
That transformation ought to be mirrored not simply in what you think or what you say, but what you do. That's what John means, I think, when he says, bear fruits worthy of repentance. It's that if you have encountered Jesus and that transformation that is affected in your life by encountering Jesus changes not only how you think, but changes who you are such that you act differently, we are called to make ourselves anew in some very real way by simply encountering and letting God do the thing that God would like to do with us in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's why he's calling these guys vipers. They've gotten it wrong because they want to come out and be washed and be clean before they meet Jesus, before they are transformed by Jesus. They see the transformation itself as the goal instead of seeing it as a secondary effect of coming to know and to love God. That's the, that's the spiritual def- defect that John is addressing. What, what, you know, if we say, look, bear fruits that are worthy of repentance, what's your first response? My first response is to say, well, yeah, I believe I've met Jesus. I believe that Jesus is affecting a transformation in me, but I don't know. There are all kinds of reasons why I'm not quite there yet. Like, I'm kind of selfish and kind of self-interested, and I don't know, like, it would require me to change all these relationships, and very, I'd have to be, you know, more kind and open to my wife and what she wants, and I'd have to listen to people at work, and I'd have to think that other people's opinions were probably better than I ought to think that they are, and yada, yada, yada. Transformation is really hard work, and it's easy for us to say there are all kinds of reasons why, though I've met Jesus and been transformed by Jesus, that transformation is not fully affected in my life. That's, the, that's what John is addressing, ultimately. He's addressing this idea that you know, there are all kinds of things that we might say are excuses for us not being transformed. And what he's asking is that we meet Jesus, we embrace Jesus, and that we allow the person of Jesus Christ to operate in our life and that we allow him to shape us towards his kingdom such that more important than being baptized or more important than being a child of Abraham and more important than any other thing that we might desire that we put Christ at the center of our lives and as a result, everything else changes radically. Now, here's the beautiful part about this. I love this. So the specific example that he is talking about here, he's talking to folks in the crowd whose, well, my reason is, uh, is that they were sons of Abraham. So some folks in the crowd, he'd say, look, come and meet Jesus. Be transformed by your relationship with Jesus. And someone in the crowd might say, well, yeah, I'm on the way to doing that, but I'm already doing pretty good. I'm a son of Abraham after all. And John sees that the internal dialogue that folks might have is about, a rich spiritual heritage or tradition that they have that they think puts them on the road to transformation independent of encountering Jesus. And gosh, this is, I think this is incredible. He says uh, that, that John says to them, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham, the axe is lying at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. It seems rough. And you can only square that with the idea of God's infinite and loving grace if you understand that God is the one who is tending the orchard. If you understand that each one of us are trees, and that God is the one who makes the fruit grow, that God is the agent of action here, and all we can try and do is to step out of the way in the hopes of a bountiful harvest. If God is the one who is growing us, if God is the one who is seeking to transform us and seeking to transform us such that we have beliefs that are radically changed, persons that are radically changed, and therefore 
uh, actions that are radically changed. The question might be, can God affect this change in me? And what about the other identities that I might belong to? I'm a child of Abraham, for example. And here's the thing. John says it's all about these stones. He's standing on the banks of the Jordan, I imagine, as he's standing on the banks of the Jordan, he gestures towards stones that he might see sitting on the banks there. And he says, God can raise the children of Abraham from even these stones. I'd like to think that John was standing on the banks of uh, the Jordan near a place called Gilgal, which is the Hebrew word for roll or remove. And if he wasn't at that place, people would have thought about or invoked this place Gilgal immediately. You see, it's all about Joshua 4. The Israelites had the waters of the Red Sea rolled back for them on the way out of Egypt. And soon after that, they were wandering around in exile for like 40 years. They went straight from Exodus to exile, if you remember that shtick from last week. We know Moses didn't make it to the Holy Land, so Joshua was charged with bringing the people of Israel back home. And when they emerged from the desert and got ready to set foot in Israel again, God instructed Joshua to remind Israel of this important fact. They didn't get back to the Holy Land because of their own grit or moral excellence. They got back because God led them and sustained them every bit of the way. Forty years wandering in exile, now the time had come, and the whole nation is gathered at the riverbank, and there's all these associations that we've already talked about with water and baptism, and they're thinking about the fact that God has, uh, you know, uh, rolled back the waters of the Red Sea and uh, let them come across and set them free, and then he's closed down the waters of the Red Sea, and he's wiped out every one of Pharaoh's forces, and there they are right at the banks of the Jordan, and God just wants to give them this little reminder before the people of Israel cross back over it. So the Jordan was flooded, and there's no way across. And so once again, just like he did with the Red Sea, God rolls back the waters of the Jordan. And God invites them, he says, after four decades of meandering in this barren wilderness, and think about all the stuff that they left there, like We'll learn later that everyone that was originally uh, exited from Egypt had died on, uh, on this journey. And imagine the number of funerals and all the things that they left in this barren wilderness and the fact that this group of people looked totally different from the one that left Egypt. They're all standing at the banks after countless funerals and a generation of people who doubted God. And God has said, look, in Egypt I set you free and I'm doing it again. And he rolls back the waters of the Jordan, and he lets them cross. And as they're crossing, he says, hey, pick up 12 stones. Pick up 12 stones and set them on the bank. And here's what, here's what God says. Joshua set up at Gilgal the 12 stones that they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, in the future, when your descendants ask their parents, what do these stones mean? You tell them this Israel crossed on dry ground. The Lord your God dried up the Jordan uh, before you had, uh, and, and, and you until you crossed over, the God did to the Jordan what He had done to the Red Sea when He dried it up. Until we had crossed over, He did this so that all peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful, and that you should always fear the Lord your God. These stones at the bottom of the River Jordan were a reminder of what God had done, but it was so much bigger than that. These stones represented the fact that there was a new, miraculous recreation of Israel that was both a fulfillment 
of the promise to Abraham and simultaneously a fulfillment of it in ways that no uh, a person could have fully expect, expected. But no one in Israel who is there at that bank ready to cross was there, save for God's miraculous intervention and not to put too fine a point on it. But after they crossed the River Jordan, which is in itself a symbolic baptism, and they set these new stones up. Remember what God commands them to do? As every new person who is a member of new Israel has crossed the River Jordan back into their traditional homeland, what does he ask them to do? He says, you know what? Circumcise everybody. God has raised up new stones, uh, a new whole children of Abraham out of these, out of these stones. And he asks uh, the people once again to, uh, to be circumcised, to be made right with God and to be once again made into, uh, into citizens of and inheritors of Israel. That, it's the same thing that the crowds are asking John. They said, look, what, what should we do? And in reply, he says to them, be transformed, live with justice and kindness, love God and others. And the details, of course, depend on who you are and what you do, whether you're a tax collector or whether you're a guard. But the point is clear that you have been given what you do not deserve and you should give to others in the same way. You should be transformed from vipers into agents of God's love. It's exactly what God had declared in the original uh, crossing of the Jordan, it says in Joshua 5, 2 through 7, at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites once again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites. And this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt died in the wilderness on the way home. The people that had came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness had not. The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness for 40 years until all the men were of military age when they had left Egypt died. So he raised up sons in their place. These were the ones that Joshua had circumcised. That's what John is saying at the borders of the Jordan. Israel had wandered in the desert. Israel had been in exile and every man that had seen the experience and heard the, of Egypt and heard the promises that were given through Moses, every one of those people was dead. But God sustained them in the wilderness. He raised up a new generation. He rolled the waters of the Jordan back for them. He allowed them to cross and he circumcised once again, them once again, taking what was the shell of Israel and making it into his people. And John is saying God is doing it once again. Once again, he is rolling back the waters. Once again, he is taking a shell of the old Israel and making it into a new and better and universal Israel. And that God is able to raise children of Abraham out of those stones is not just about the power of God in the abstract, but it's about a fulfillment of a promise to the people of Israel that says that God will make of even the wreckage of your hopes and dreams a new nation. And that new nation will include new, a new possibility for people to be made right with God. What John is saying here in baptism is beautiful. He's saying that every person that was out there, regardless of whether they identified themselves as the heirs or descendants of Abraham, was made able to cross the Jordan and to enter into a new Israel. Amen. Questions, discussion, etc.? Trey, what do you got? Get your Joshua ready. <laughs> uh, anything else? Reflections, talk, etc. Gabriel, God took stones out of the bottom of the Jordan. And, no, you with me? Sure. Okay. Good. 
right. Uh, prayers to the people. <laughs>